I will hand over to Alex from Red Star Radio. Thank you very much, Jesse. Uh, now, uh, thank you, comrades, for the invitation to speak here today. I'm going to be speaking about the uh, industrial issues that uh, Jyoti uh, touched on there in her introduction, and then move on to what I see and what we at the, uh, the project I'm involved in, the Class Consciousness Project, uh, see as the big barriers to uh, class struggle in Britain today. So first of all, I'll talk a little bit about um, the Class Consciousness Project, which I've uh, been involved with since the beginning of the year. Myself and other comrades from London and the northwest of England uh, founded this at the beginning of the year because we were looking at the situation that was developing with regard to the uh, various different uh, trade union struggles that have been ongoing since the middle point of 2022. And these looks to be declining away towards an inevitable sellout in the end. We could still see it developing through the various actions of the different union leaderships. And as it turns out, we were unfortunately correct about that. So what we uh, did at the beginning of this year, we decided to bring a group of us together who, though some have slightly different political perspectives, some are involved in political organizations, some aren't, we decided that there had to be a project started that would learn from the best examples of trade unionism in the past. And that trade unionism, I mean, is the trade unionism that comes from the base of the unions, that comes from the workers themselves, organizing in such a way as to be able to push past the bureaucratic resistance of the trade union leaders and, of course, the, uh, the ever-present barrier to class struggle in Britain, and that is the Labour Party. And we look over our history and we look back over 100 years to see examples of this uh, that have inspired us, including the national minority movement of the 1920s and 1930s that was very much linked to the original Communist Party of Great Britain, and how this turned into a nightmare for the trade union leaders and the Labour Party of the time, because suddenly uh, rank-and-file workers were not only organizing in the, the base of the unions in defiance of the union leaders, but we're educating themselves. We're raising themselves through the process of struggle and collective education to a higher level of consciousness so that they were no longer prepared to put up with the excuses and the lies and the obfuscations of the trade union leaders. And we look back um, slightly closer in our history to the period of struggle that erupted in the late 1960s and ran through to the middle 1980s. You saw there leaders like Arthur Scargill and others coming through the ranks of the, what was then the National Union of Mine Workers to become a prominent national figure, then lead that union because of the organizing at the rank and file level. And it was this uh, strength of uh, rank and file worker organization that motivated and uh, gave strength to a lot of the struggles that we are now famous in the early 1970s, such as upper Clyde shipbuilders, the, vet, the strength of the trade union struggles in the car industry, all of that, with all its limitations, and there were real limitations, came from the organized working class, the politically educated working class, the, the strong sense of class consciousness that terrified the employers and the government. And it was one of the motivating factors behind the, uh, the later Thatcher government's decision to break up industries, destroy whole trade unions, and gets to the point where they could uh, reduce that level of class consciousness, to stamp it out, to atomize the working class, 
so that that level of struggle could not reappear again for a generation. And as we sit here today, it is now over a generation since that last heroic struggle in the middle 1980s of the National Union of Mine Workers was brought to uh, an unfortunate defeat, largely by not just the action of the state forces, but the lack of solidarity coming from the rest of the trade union movement. And the fact that so many trade union leaders would, uh, were much happier to see the National Union of Mine Workers defeated than they would have been to see a victory. And that is something that remains true to this day. So when we started the project, that was our inspiration to try and do something to start a, an education process that was free of the, uh, the bureaucratic inertia of the, uh, the trade union education process. Now, I've been in the trade union movement for 20 years now uh, in various different trade unions. I've been in the shop workers union, Osdor, which if you've ever been in it, you know how bad it is. It's uh, stuck in a uh, long-term loveless marriage to the Labour Party, which each side keeps recommitting to every year. Um, the, I've been in uh, my current union, Unite, for uh, multiple occasions, but most of my time was spent in the civil servants trade union, public and commercial services, uh, which is a union that isn't linked to the Labour Party, but has all the disadvantages of being so. So what, what all of us came in, in the project came to the realisation of was that when... The situation worsens in Britain, which it is worsening now. The class struggle is intensifying from the ruling class who are really amping up or preparing to amp up their attacks on the working class. You can see this in a lot of what they're doing. You can see it, of course, most obviously in the gigantic profit made by a company like British Gas, when, of course, workers have been struggling to heat their homes over the past year. And you can see it also in the passing of the cost on of the many crises that have been uh, present in British capitalism since 2008 to the working class. And there was a story just in the last week of how the multiple rounds of quantitative easing that have uh, pumped billions into the banking system, well, that cost is going to be passed directly onto the working class through the form of another 150 billion the government has to provide to the Bank of England to make up for the losses on those programs of all the, uh, the rotten um, assets they've bought up over the last 15 years. And that cost is going to be passed directly onto the working class. It's going to be passed on in the form of wage restraint, wage cuts, cuts to public services, the draining away of resources from many areas of the country. And it's, it, that is the class war. We're told, of course, by bourgeois propaganda that you shouldn't fight a class war. But of course, they're just saying that they want an unopposed class war. Whereas the class war from them is constant. It is all the time. It is in every aspect of our lives that the, the bourgeoisie wages its class war. And they only get angry when the working class gets strong enough and educated enough to actually launch an effective fight back. So these are the motivations behind us starting the Class Consciousness Project. Now, I want to talk to you today about the three big barriers as we see it as to waging effective class struggle in Britain today. I think many of you may have observed them already. But the first and most obvious is the link to the Labour Party. Now, before I went into um, higher positions in the, um, in the trade union movement, I wasn't fully aware of just how crippling this link is to actually the development of real struggle. And it isn't just crippling in the Labour-linked unions either. It's because the entire TUC is wedded to the Labour Party. It has a vested interest in making sure that any interesting struggle, any struggle that might go somewhere, that might lead workers to a higher level of consciousness, any of those struggles is immediately squashed stifled, sold out, capitulated upon, because they fear the escalation of the struggle far more than they fear the government. You have to remember 
the leaders of the trade union movement in Britain have a very nice niche for themselves. They have uh, guaranteed access to the House of Lords at the end of a long and distinguished career of selling out every single struggle. You can get £300 a day to fall asleep uh, soaked in wine on a red bench. <laughs> nice work if you're prepared to sell out absolutely everybody. And this is, of course, the serious point is that the, the Labour Party's role here in squashing working class struggle, it isn't new. It, it isn't the case, as many Labour leftists say, that the party has lost its way. This is what it was set up to do. Over 120 years ago, it was set up not by the militant end of the working class. It was set up by the trade union bureaucracy and the middle class socialist organizations like the Fabians, who essentially viewed the working class as at best objects of charity, not as the potential rulers of a new society. So the Labour Party from its beginning was there to manage class struggle. It was there to make sure it remained within acceptable boundaries. And in that, Keir Starmer is an exact perfect successor to Ramsay MacDonald, to Harold Wilson, and to all of the other Labour leaders, including Saint Clement of Attlee, who they all <laughs> swear that they love so much. Because the, the point is that there's no, there was no point where the Labour Party was an actual vessel for the, to the struggle of workers. Whether you look at every single struggle that's been waged over the past century that meant anything, every single one of them the Labour Party's turned its back on at best, or actively suppressed if it's been in government. Look at the amount of strikes that the, again, the, the sainted Attlee government suppressed between 1945 and 1951. And that's leaving aside all of their brutal acts of imperialism, which were used to hyper-exploit the colonized peoples of the world in order to fund concessions to the British working class. Of course, nobody in the British left wants to talk about that, but I'll come back to that later. But the Labour Party link in this day and age is the severity of the stifling that it puts upon working class struggle is getting worse because the situation is getting worse. Because we're in a, we are in a developing class war where the pressure from the ruling class is relentless and the response of the, the working class is getting angrier, but it lacks the, the class lacks in general the level of political education, the level of class consciousness to actually wage a struggle against not only the, the, the employers and the government, but also against their own leaders, their own supposed leaders. Because if you look at what's happened with the so-called settlements that the Communication Workers Union has signed up to in the, uh, in, the post, in the post office, in Royal Mail, if you look at what the National Education Union leaders have settled for, what the health union leaders are prepared to settle for, it's paltry, it's nothing. And one of the key reasons why is, of course, this Labour Party link, because the power of the Labour Party within that trade union bureaucracy is immense, and they lean on that to make sure that there's no disruption, especially as we get closer and closer to an election. All of those leaders, whether they're directly tied to the Labour Party or not, are going to keep suppressing struggle and keep pushing it down. So one of the key things that we have to agitate for in the movement is that we must secure disaffiliation from the Labour Party of all of our trade unions. And even if that takes us a year, takes us two years, or we have to wage that struggle continually, we have to take that message to trade union members up and down the country to let them know that not only does the Labour Party not acting in their interest, it is an active barrier to having their interests addressed, to having their class interests actually looked after. And that's something, it is something that many workers have an instinctive feeling for. They know very well that the Labour Party is not their friend. I'm not talking about the bureaucracy now, I'm talking the regular worker knows very well that the Labour Party is not his or her friend. 
but they lack the knowledge as to how to put that into a political program of action. And that is what we must be prepared to do. Now, the other two factors I want to touch on here is that our barriers to class struggle that we must overcome is the role of the British left. Now, the role of the British left, no matter whether it calls itself the Communist Party of Britain, the Socialist Workers' Party, or any variation of the above, is all essentially they perform the same role. Because these are organizations that after in the working class. They might call themselves all manner of things, but these are organizations that are rooted in the trade union bureaucracy, most of all, and in academia as a second place. And what that gives them is the same mentality that the bureaucrats that they will spend two and a half years screaming at, and then they'll spend two and a half years as we get up closer to an election saying, well, we'd better vote Labour again because otherwise the Tories will get in or the fascists will get in or Nigel Farage will rise from the grave out of his banned bank account and set up the Sixth Reich in Britain or something. <laughs> Sounds stupid, but I've been in meetings where various hysterical people from various organisations start saying, we've got to stop X and that's why we have to get behind Ed Miliband or Keir Starmer. Corbyn gave them some cover because he appeared to be different, but you look what the man did in office, it wasn't as different as his advertisers would like us to believe. And so the British left plays this role where it hysterically opposes the trade union bureaucracy in words for a little while, and then it goes back to collaborating with them again. And it's all part of the same game. They provide the illusion of an alternative, the illusion that they're engaging in revolutionary struggle, but in every single time, they always turn back towards the Labour Party again. And that is because they are fatally addicted to wanting to return to social democracy. If you look at what all of them talk about in all of their material, it's all got to get back to 1945 to 50. If we could just get back to that again by pressuring the union leaders, finding the right Labour Party leader, if we can just rearrange the deck chairs on this um, British Titanic that's sinking, then we can somehow magic our way back to an earlier form of capitalist rule. That's really all the British left is interested in. And that is why I say it's a barrier to effective trade union struggle, because these are the organizations that effectively dominate a lot of the organized left inside the trade unions. And they're a barrier to it. And I know this very well because I used to be part of that barrier. Uh, thankfully, I realized that I needed to jump off it. So the role of the left is also crucial. But this feeds into the, the general problem, which I've touched on already, which is the low level of class consciousness within the British working class. And that this has been the case at least since the end of the miners' strike in 1985, which was a devastating defeat, a devastating blow to working class consciousness and organization. Also, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the generalized offensive against socialism, communism, Marxism, and against the very concept of class politics itself. I went to university in the early 2000s, and one of the big academic grifts of the time was writing books about how there wasn't a working class in Britain anymore. Whereas in what in actual fact was happening was that many occupations that used to be better paid were being pushed downwards and you were actually seeing a wave of proletarianization going on in many occupations across the country. Even occupations that used to regard themselves as having a special privileged status, like medicine or law, were finding themselves de-skilled and having their terms and conditions cut. Whilst at the same time, of course, they were all screaming that because everybody could buy a TV now on a credit card, that meant that the class struggle was over. And this was a serious academic um, pursuit. I say serious in heavy inverted commas. So, but it's all part of a cohesive strategy on behalf of the ruling class, which is to deny that there's any class struggle, to make people believe that they're all, they're all in it together. This was the big 
uh, Labour Party projects, which they inherited from Thatcher and Major. And it continues to this day. They are still trying to deny that there is a class struggle, and that's because they're the ones constantly waging it. And so one of the things we have to do is to tap into this anger that does exist, this uh, raw, perhaps unfocused anger that is out there beyond the institutional left, in the working class uh, masses that are out there waiting for some kind of struggle to take place that they can actually join. Because the, the anger is real, the frustration is real, people aren't stupid, they know that they have less at the end of every month, they can see the situation is not going to be improved by the coming of Sir Keir Starmer to power or anybody else. But nobody is going out there and actually taking this level of uh, political education into the class. And that is what we as socialists, communists, whatever we call ourselves, must be prepared to do. We must be prepared to go around these barriers, make the working class fully aware of the nature of the Labour Party, the nature of the trade unions. Because in the next phase, and I'll conclude on this point, comrades, is that Keir Starmer is probably going to get into office and it will be his job to wage the class war upon the British working class. And we had better be ready to actually take that message out there and organize the class to lead a struggle not only against Keir Starmer and the wretched Labour Party government, but against their own leaders, against the trade union leaders who will actively try to block that struggle. Because that is going to be the crucial task as we go forward, to try and lead a fight back that can overcome the horrific barriers that um, seek to shut down the struggle of our class. And we can do that if we go beyond the established movement, beyond the institutional left, and connect with the great masses of the British working class in a direct way. And if we can do that, comrades, I am confident that the struggle in the next period will be a more successful one and can lead us back towards the real rebuilding of an actual communist movement in Britain. Thank you. I'm going to start the Q&A session uh, by asking Alex uh, if he could just talk to us a little bit more about the mechanisms of control in the trade union movement and specifically the role that the left play. Because I, you know, all my life as a trade unionist and as a political operative, I have run into people, particularly from the SWP, the Socialist Party, the CPB, who boast continuously about their connections with the working class. And the proof of this is their involvement in the trade unions and the number of positions they hold in trade union committees and bodies and leaderships and all the rest of it. And this is proof that they have an organic connection. They always tell us with the working class, uh, not like you, you know, crazy extremists. Uh, we're connected to the working class, they tell us. Um, but yet, I don't see in the way that trade unions behave, any impact of this connection of the so-called radical left mm. in the trade unions. So what is the role that they play in this whole bureaucracy? Um, uh, very very low-paid policemen, basically. Um, the the role of the left in the trade unions, I mean, you mentioned uh, that, that, that people list the number of uh, committees that they're on and the number of uh, posts they hold. I once held... Um, two national posts, one regional post, and one workplace post. It didn't make me any more connected to the working class. It made me more connected to the other elements in the trade union bureaucracy. That's what holding all these positions does. And the, the job becomes not representing the working class. The job becomes holding on to the position. And that's because the 
party that they're members of, whether it be any of those organizations Jyoti's just mentioned, or even like supposed anarchist type figures, prioritize holding on to the position. Now, how do you hold on to the position? You limit what the working class can actually engage in. And you do that by demoralizing the class. You do that by going before a meeting full of workers and saying, well, comrades, we've tried, we've had a really great strike, but the employers just aren't shifting. And so it looks like 8% over two years, um, possibly over three years, is the best we could possibly do. Unless, unless, and I'm willing to do this, we go out on all, all out strike now and we just carry on until we win. So that what they do is then, I'm kind of joking, but this is the technique, you present then an ultra left position saying that the only way to win is like all out strike and you know what happens with all out strikes, so it'll be like the miners and we'll inevitably, inevitably lose. That's the way in which the left polices the consciousness of the working class, by positing it in a case of either nothing or everything, zero to 100 with no stages in between. The idea of building a struggle patiently and building, um, the, bringing in new layers of the working class into that struggle of raising the level of consciousness, all of that is put to one side. And all that they, uh, these groups are really interested in is manipulating the working class into a conclusion that is acceptable for the higher up trade union bureaucracy, because it's about preserving their position over and above everything else, preserving the position of all these different groups within Unite, within Unison, within GMB, and that leads them into accepting all kinds of reactionary things. It's what leads leftist groups to suddenly declare that the aggressor in Ukraine is Russia, or that we should get behind a rearmament program, or that we should ultimately vote Labour. It's all about clinging on to that position within the bureaucracy, and it leads them to be essentially the bureaucracy's policemen. And that's what they have been for a very long time. And that coming out of a time of comparatively low levels of class struggle in Britain, it means they're also guardians of conservatism within the movement. Uh, Vitoire was noting the, the struggle in France to go and organize the, uh, the precarious workers, the, those who aren't in the trade unions, those who are very low paid, those who are on uh, short term contracts. Well, we've been banging that drum in Britain, or we tried to for many years. And the response from the higher ups and most of the left organizations was to do an event, say, we've now done this X number of events about organizing McDonald's workers or organizing cleaners in, uh, who are working on precarious contracts. We've done the event, job done. We tried. We tried. There weren't, the workers weren't interested, comrades. Better to, better to go back and carry on defending what we've got. And the idea of actually expanding the movement out is something which is anathema to them because that involves, first of all, effort. Some of these people are incredibly lazy. Also, it involves running a risk. And you're running a risk because you're pushing into areas of the economy that have been deliberately kept outside of the realm of trade union organization in order to enable hyper-exploitation of the most vulnerable areas of the class. The frequently these are, um, as is the case in France, uh, low-paid migrant workers who don't have any history in the trade union movement. And even though they'll hold 10 seminars a year saying all about, well, we need to unionize these people, they never do it because it involves a head-on collision with the employers with the government and they don't want to do that because again that's too risky that might risk their position they might offend the higher-ups in the TUC or the Labour Party and that's why action on this has been so contemptibly slow because they don't they just don't want to do it and the risk is of course that by not doing that we're leaving whole areas of the class completely unorganized and not being brought into that struggle when it is our job as communists to take that first of all the basics of class organization 
to the, as wide a layers of the working class as possible, and then to bring them into the class and unite the class around a core set of demands. And the union movement at the moment is not only not doing that, but they are actively opposed to doing that. And the left acts as their policeman and enforcing that line. Okay. Well, uh, the trade union, the anti-trade union laws in Britain are very well designed because they make the trade union leaders basically responsible for enforcing them. And because they can, under all the different concentrated trade union legislation from the in, um, Employment Acts and Industrial Relations Act onwards, they make the union leadership bear a responsibility for any illegality as defined by the laws, which means it's the union's assets which get um, confiscated if the law is broken, uh, sequestration. So to get around them, to come to the, the crux of the question, it's uh, a matter of, first of all, balancing, as Vitoire was saying in her answer, uh, well, what is worth actually breaking the law for and what is not worth it? You don't just want to say, sod it, let's go out and get arrested. Um, that's what being an anarchist is for. Um, but um, you, ha you have to make a judgment. Uh, is this situation going to lead by breaking the law to an increase in the level of consciousness? Is it going to improve the struggle? Is it going to lead the workers to either win something or discover something important? Is it going to draw more layers into the struggle by doing so? And those are the important questions to ask. Now, to conclude the point, the only way to overcome them is the way in which it has been done in the past, which is the, if you look back into history, the mass trade union struggles of the early 1970s, which were often done in defiance of or in protest against new anti-trade union laws, where they were overcome by the simple amount of workers in the streets. In the, in the 1970s in Britain, when the union movement was at its strongest, they were able to overcome anti-trade union laws by mass resistance, by pulling out so many workers that the police could not possibly arrest them all. And so we must learn that lesson. It seems to us now as if that is a long way away, but it is the only way that we're going to get around the laws and through them and to actually overcome our current situation by reaching the point where millions of workers are prepared to defy them, therefore removing the power of the trade union leadership to stop us and also severely weakening the power of the state in terms of its ability to intimidate. There's millions of workers suddenly feeling their collective power out in the street, seeing that production has stopped and seeing their power in action. That will create a huge force that the state, uh, as it is currently constituted, will find very hard to resist. I have a question for Alexander. Yes, great. Just quick. Uh, basically, we see the strikes as a disruption, but uh, immediately the organization, the system creates plan B, and the strike became less effective through the days. On the other hand, as Paige has mentioned, we have a strike for different organizations, different unions, etc. All the ones discord without any coordination and therefore less effective. My question is, what are the limitations for a general strike? What are, if you can develop the idea why hmm. this, all these strikes that are separated and not become in one flow and one big river that can <laughs> illuminate us? <laughs> well, the TUC in 2012 uh, passed a motion which agreed to investigate the practicalities of a general strike. And the investigation's been going on for 11 years. 
Um, and they haven't come up with a conclusion yet. We'll get back to you. You know, the answer's in the post. But more seriously, um, why, do the, why do all these strikes remain uh, fragmented and not put together? Because the leadership doesn't want them put together. Yeah. That's the reason why. They know very well that if, they, if you suddenly put together um, all the health unions going out in conjunction, uh, to draw on what Ranjit was just yeah. saying, then that would present a serious problem. Or if, for instance, we broadened out that struggle um, and had, so we say, several other unions who had disputes striking, but also adding into their demands, um, the unofficial or unofficially, a defense of the National Health Service, that would be hugely popular with the wider population as well. So this comes back to what we were saying about gatekeepers. The trade union leaders, the reason why that this doesn't happen, why even when we had the coordinated public sector strikes of 2011, when we had that one day on November the 30th, 2011, where millions of public sector workers came out, trade union leaders capitulated the next week. Because again, they're more afraid of workers escalating the struggle, of learning about their power in struggle than they are losing to the government, because they're not losing, we are. And the point about it is that when it comes to um, the future struggles, we should be working at the grassroots level to make sure that people, first of all, demand unified action from their leaders to go to their leaders at the branch the re and the regional level and say, we must have coordinated action across uh, all of our different industrial sectors and to broaden out the demands to make social demands, to make defense of the NHS part of the uh, popularized as a demand. So that when people go on strike, they're also thinking about that. They're actively organizing around that. We have to break out of the silo that the law and years of defeat has put us in. Otherwise, the government's going to pick us off one by one by one. I'm going to wrap up in a second. First, I'm going to ask Alex if you have anything more to add. Well, just to go back to the point about the union movement remaining divided and not acting together, uh, solidarity action was very carefully made illegal from the 1980s onwards. So it used to be, I, I had this lecturer at university who'd been a um, machine tool worker in the 70s, and he told me stories about walking out of his plant uh, in solidarity with the Chilean workers who were being repressed by Pinochet because the plant was supplying Hawk fighter jets to the Pinochet regime. And that, of course, is now illegal. And not only is it illegal, they've worked very hard to make sure that all workers have been atomized to the point where the legal framework essentially becomes your consciousness. Unless you have a very specific identifiable dispute, you're not allowed to go on strike. And yet, every year at the Union Congresses, there's this social and economic section where we get past uh, every year uh, motions on save the NHS, protect public transport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They go in the file, the leadership says, we will take this up with the TUC. The TUC says, that's nice, and no one does anything. Now, one of the what we need to get around, and I think this is the general theme emerging from our discussion, is this, um, this legally imposed framework which institutionalizes atomization and division. And we need to look at the, the social demands of the class, the social demands like having access to uh, the, a healthcare system that works and is available for them when they need it, to um, having, having decent wages across the board, to having decent housing, because there's a housing bill and motions passed every year at conferences that nobody does anything about. So those social cr um, cross-class demands that go across the entire working class, these, are, these now need to be popularized as demands to mobilize around. 
there needs to be it needs to be a full spectrum of demands being put forward, not just narrow wage claims anymore, though that would be a start. We have to broaden this struggle out towards the entire state of life that the working class has in this country and all the things that are being taken away from us in this relentless class war from the capitalist class who want to take back every concession that's ever been made to us. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.